Good morning, church. We've been studying for the last several weeks in the Old Testament book of Judges, a series of messages that we have called, Why We Seek Him. And at this hour in the life of our church and in the life of our nation, I can't imagine a more appropriate book for us to study than the book of Judges. And we've seen over and over again how God was gracious to his people who were not leaning on him, looking for him, loving him, but were running from him the wrong direction. And how over and over again God in his mercy and his love pursued them and brought them back to himself. We're in our second week of looking at this man Gideon and we've seen how the people of Israel were just overrun by another group called the Midianites. And every year, the people of God would plant their crops and would make their investments and would create their wealth. And when harvest time came, the Midianites would also come, and they would take everything that they had worked so hard for. They would take it away from them. We saw how God appeared to Gideon and brought Gideon to himself and began to prepare Gideon to be the one that God was going to use to bring the nation back to himself and set them free. And we're at this moment now in chapter 7, verse 2. And we're going to look at some other things back in chapter 6, but right now in chapter 7, verse 2, I'd like to begin reading. An army's begun to gather around Gideon, and this is the next thing that's taking place. Chapter 7, verse 2. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, whoever is fearful and afraid, let him turn and depart at once from Mount Gilead. And 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Bring them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. Then it will be that of whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, the same shall go with you. And of whomever I say to you, This one shall not go with you, the same shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps from the water with his tongue, as a dog laps, you shall set apart by himself. Likewise, everyone who gets down on his knees to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, entirely different group, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people got down on their knees to drink water. Then the Lord said to Gideon, By the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and deliver the Midianites into your hand. Let all the other people go, every man to his place. So the people took provisions and their trumpets in their hands, and he sent away all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, and retained those 300 men. Now the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. It happened on the same night that the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have delivered it into your hand. Pray with me. 
Father, we've gathered here together today to to worship you and to sing your praises, and we have done that. We have sung songs about the liberty we have in Christ. We have sung songs about giving you glory. And some of us who have sung from the depths of our heart, we have sung about freedom and that we are free, but deep in our hearts we know we are not. And that when we leave this place, we will climb back into our cars and we will go back home and we will re-enter our own prison and the bonds that are holding us spiritually. And Father, I know in the hearing of my voice there, there's someone here that doesn't know Jesus, that has never come to a place where they fully have surrendered their life to him and counted on him fully to carry away their sins and to change them from the inside out. We pray, God, this morning that at the end of the service you would so reveal yourself to that dear one that they would come and publicly embrace Jesus and claim him as their Lord and Savior, just like River did this week. Father, I pray for those of us, we are the people of God, and we are finding ourselves over and over again in difficulty and trouble, finding ourselves frustrated, finding ourselves oppressed, especially where we live here in the delta of Arkansas. And Father, our heart desires that you would come and set us free. Our desires that you would come and reveal yourself to our hearts in such a way that that vision of you would burn deeply into our soul and would change us forever. That we would recognize that you are God. There is none like you. Not only do you deserve the glory, but you are glorious. Father, we pray that at the conclusion of this service, your Holy Spirit will do a work in every one of our hearts, learning our attention fully to you and away from whatever it is that's troubling us. Help us to see that our problems are not the problem, but that our greatest need is to know you more fully. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Some years ago, I was visiting a friend, pastor of a church, and I noticed in, uh, they had a little mini bookstore in their church, and, and I noticed that there was a little pamphlet there a gospel pamphlet that if you were to give it to someone, they could read it and, and learn how to be saved, how to come to know Christ, how to follow him, how to become a Christian. And this little booklet was short. It, was, it wasn't very big, just two folds, and you could read it in just a few minutes. And I really liked it, and I got one, and I took it home. Uh, not too long after that, I was reading a book by a, a recognized preacher and this book, this author, and this pastor that I had visited used to work together. I'm reading this author's book, well-known preacher, and I was reading his book, and I got somewhere early in the first chapter and realized he was presenting the gospel, and what I was reading were the exact words in my friend's booklet. Well, I thought that was interesting. There was no credit given. There was no footnote. And so I called my friend who had written those words, and I said, hey, did you know that so-and-so wrote a book and that he took the words from your gospel presentation and he put it in his book? He said, yeah, how about that? 
He said, I guess I'm going to have to talk to him about that. Plagiarism is taking something that belongs to someone else, that someone else created, and passing it off as your own. Um, Some years ago, I was uh, temporarily a professor, an adjunct teacher at Blue Mountain College. I taught for four terms there. This was in another life. I was a graduate student, and I was teaching sociology and history, which was what I was studying at the time. And and I, I was teaching, one of my classes that I was teaching was a class on historiography. Historiography is, is learning how to write history. And there are different ways to write history, different perspectives. And so we were teaching that. And in order to graduate with your degree in history, you had to pass this class by writing a paper, an original work, based on primary sources, original documents that, that were historical in nature. And you had to write about some topic. And, of course, as part of that class, I I spent a lot of time teaching how to properly cite your sources so that you're not guilty of plagiarism. And this one one young woman um, would look at me and nod her head. She seemed to get it. But as she wrote preliminary papers and was turning them in, I'm thinking, this is not the same person. I'm reading these words, but she doesn't know these words She could not have produced this document. She could not have worked and produced this thing. And so I would, I even sat with her privately several times. I said, dear, this is how you properly cite something. And she said, oh, I get it. I understand. You can't plagiarize. You can't copy. You you have to cite your sources. If it's a quote, you have to offset it and, and, and cite it with a footnote and so forth. She said, I get it. She turns in her final paper. I'm reading the same thing. I'm reading something and it's written in 19th century language, and she's passing it off as her own. And we didn't have Google back then. This was before the Internet. And, and so we didn't have the tools that professors have now, which I'm warning you. They will find you. Your sin will find you out. And, um, and so I, I went, one of the places that, that I believe she was getting her sources was from a local county courthouse and and so I drove over there and I I pulled the documents that I suspected she had copied and show enough she had copied those things fully I carried her paper and with a broken heart I went with the academic dean I said what am I going to do she can't graduate unless she passes this course he says you got to fail her I said oh goodness is there's not another way he says well if you won't do it I'll do it he said you got to do it And uh, so she took summer school and graduated in August. (laughs) Plagiarism is epidemic in our society. Have you noticed that? There is a fundamental lack of integrity in leadership, but not just in leadership, in schools and institutions and in the business world. You can go to Google News and you can type in the word plagiarism and do a search on that in news, just in the news, and watch how many articles come up about plagiarism. What I want to talk to you this morning about is is a kind of spiritual plagiarism. Because we have a tendency as human beings, I pray not so much as the people of God, but we have a tendency as human beings to take all the credit for our successes, and when something bad happens, we give all the blame to God. When in fact, it's absolutely the other way around, isn't it? 
When something good happens and we find that we have been gifted or enabled or blessed in some way, we should be giving all the attention or credit to God, and if anything goes wrong, perhaps we ought to give the blame to ourselves. But this is where the people of God found themselves at this hour. The greatest problem in Gideon's generation at this moment was the same, the same kind of problem. They had absolutely no idea, no sense of the glory of God, no sense of who he really is, no conception that they are dealing with someone who is majestic, who is beautiful, who is glorious. As a consequence of that, the God that they had in mind was way too small. And they went into their assignments, beginning with the first generation, and we read about in Judges chapter 1, and they went with this mission, this assignment to drive out all of the enemies of God. And when they found that they couldn't do it in their own strength, they made compromises, they made soft choices, and they decided what I need to do is learn how to live a defeated life. And so instead of not quitting and saying, God has said that we could do this, we're going to trust God until we understand how he wants us to do it, they just settled down. They settled down with the enemy, they intermarried with the enemy, and they began adopting the culture and the norms of worship of the enemy, worshiping false gods. And that's why I believe that this book is such a picture of the church in North America and where you and I are sitting today. Instead of going into a a, a society and influencing it by presenting God in all his glory and presenting who he is, instead of us going forward trusting him to do things through us to reveal himself and push back the darkness, Instead, the prevailing culture, we have settled down to live in that culture. Maybe we wring our hands about what's happening. We look at some things and we think, isn't that terrible? And we have all kinds of words and verbal battles, but we have no, no spiritual advance whatsoever. And instead of us affecting the culture, the culture affects us. And we have settled down with it. And we, we intermarry with the culture. And we have settled down to the worship norms of the culture in which we live. We have been Canaanite. There are two types of glory described in the Scripture. First of all, there's a type of glory that, that emanates from God. When Moses met with God on Mount Sinai, one of the things that, that happened was that God said, you cannot see my face and live. The glory of God is so bright, so powerful, that it would simply vaporize us and destroy us if we were to see it without filters. In Exodus 33, you'll remember in a study we did some time ago, Moses actually asked God, show me your glory. God said, you can't see it head on, paraphrasing. He said, but I'll pass by you. I'll pass near you. And when he did, God said, I am the Lord, the Lord God. And he describes himself with several descriptions. And in, those, in understanding who he is, then we begin to understand something of his glory. I want to suggest to you today, that's where we're hurting as a church, is we do not understand who he is. And many of our difficulties that we struggle with would be vaporized if we understood something more of who God is, his glory. So there's a glory that emanates from God. Let me give you an example of this. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 23, John is describing 
the heavenly city that is the destiny of every Christian. He says, the city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. That's a brilliant kind of majesty, isn't it? There's no sun, no stars, no light bulbs, no electricity, just the presence of God and his glory lit it up. So that's one kind of glory. But there's another kind of glory, and that's the kind of glory that we give to him through our lives. You and I have been made in his image, it says in Genesis 1. And because we've been made in his image, we know right away when God said, let's make man in our image, that God had a purpose in doing that. And because he is spirit and he is invisible, we know one of his purposes is that the invisible God wants to make himself visible through our lives. We're made in his image for a purpose. And so your purpose, the reason you're sitting here today, the reason you're as blessed as you are, able to take the very next breath, is because God's purpose is that through your life, he would make himself known to all creation. You are made in his image. And so what you do, what you say, everything about you, ultimately God intended for you to give him the glory, to show him through that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, this is what the apostle says when he writes, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do how much? All. Say it again. All. Do all to the glory of God. Everything. You say, that sounds like a little bit fanatical. Yep. He wants us to think about what we're doing, to be intentional about what we're doing so that what I say points to him. What I do points to him. What we do collectively as a church points to him. Calls attention to him. So at the end of the day, they don't say, what a great preacher, what a great church member, what a great deacon, what a great Sunday school teacher, what a great church. They say, what a great God. When my kids were growing up, most mornings we had what we called Bible time, and we would spend time together reading God's Word. We did a lot of different things to try to keep it interesting for children. When I would take them to school, one of the habits we formed, because we would talk about their school campus as their mission field, to help them think about the fact that, that they are there, yes, to study, yes, they are there to learn, yes, they are to have social interactions, but they are there in a mission field. There are a lot of kids that don't know Jesus. That's true of Wynn High. That's true of Wynn Intermediate. That's true of Wynn Primary. That's Wynn of Junior High. I mean, all through those schools, it's a mission field, right? Yes, it is. And so I would take my kids to school. I'd open the door. And one of the things I would say, they'd get embarrassed. They'd try to get away before I said it. I'd say, hey, shine brightly in a dark place. Shine brightly in a dark place. And that's what God wants to do with you and me. Now, how how can he do that? How does that happen, that God can bring glory to himself through you and me? Here's the question this morning I want us to explore. When does God bring glory to himself through me? And I'm going to go ahead and throw in the church, too, in my church. How does he do that? When does that happen? When does God bring glory to himself through me? Number one, when the only explanation for our lives is supernatural. 
when the only explanation for our lives is supernatural. But the closer people get to you, the, the more they get to know you, the more they get up close and they can, they can see you, listen to you, watch you up close. But one of the things they begin to notice about you is you're a little bit different from other people. It's kind of hard to put their finger on it, but something is going on with you. It's supernatural. One of the remarkable things that happened with Gideon, we saw this last week, is that when he began to realize who he was talking to and something of the mag- mag- magnificence and the majesty of God, that one of the first things he did was build an altar. You remember that? Built an altar, made a sacrifice to God. And then in the, as part of that interaction with God, he, he is now humbled. He realizes God's not just another God among a bunch of gods on the shelf. He's not there as my co-pilot. He's there to be my Lord and my King. And, and he's just overwhelmed by that. God says, now what you need to do next, Gideon, is you need to go to your father's house and you need to pull down that household altar to Baal and that wooden pole that represents the goddess Asherah. The Bible says he got up and he did it. He did it at night. He got 10 of his servants. He destroyed the altar. He cut up the the wooden pole that represented the goddess and he burned it on the altar of God that he had just built. Well, the very next morning, the people of the town woke up. Apparently, this household altar was something that everybody participated in and that everybody used. When you go back to chapter 6, verse 30, this is what we read. Chapter 6, verse 30. It says, Then the men of the city said to Joash, Bring out your son, that he may die. So what do they want to do to him? They want to kill him. That he may die, because he has torn down the altar of Baal, and because he has cut down the wooden image that was beside it. Now at that point, Gideon's dad does something really interesting. He defends his son. Obviously he loves him, doesn't want to see him get killed. So he, he, he steps in the fray and he says, hold on just a minute. Baal, Baal means ruler. Baal means the one who's in charge of everything. And if he is really the one in charge, if he is really the Lord, he can defend himself, right? Everybody sort of scratched their heads and said, sure, that's right. And so he sort of talked them out of that. In fact, they gave Gideon a nickname that means Baal pleads. Baal can take care of his own business. That was his new nickname. That's a rough translation. And then we read in the, in the next passage, verse 33, then we read, then all the Midianites and the Malachites, the people of the east, gathered together. So we don't know exactly how much longer, but soon thereafter, it's that time of year again. It's that time of year where they have worked all season, they have grown their crops, they have produced their wealth, they're ready to take the harvest, and it's that time of year again when it says the Midians, Midianites and the Malachites, the people of these, gathered together, and they crossed over and encamped in the valley of Jezreel, and everybody knew what was coming. Verse 34, but, boy, if I had my Bible and a pencil, I would circle that word but. But the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Then he blew the trumpet, and the Abiasrites gathered behind him. Now what's significant is Gideon was a member of the clan within Manasseh, the big tribe of Manasseh. There were different clans. His clan was the, were the Abiasrites. They were the clan that he belonged to. These were the men who said, he's got to die because he tore down the altar to Baal. 
And so in one verse, they're saying he's got to die. In the next passage, he blows a trumpet, and they're saying, hey, we'll go. We're going to go fight. The same people who had cowered for seven years, they just let it happen for seven years. The same people that wanted to kill Gideon a few verses earlier, now they're ready to fight with him to the death. I want to suggest to you that that's not natural, that's supernatural. Something remarkable has changed in Gideon's life. When you go back to verse 34, the Bible says, but the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Now, very few translations get that one right. There's a special wording that's used there in that verse in the Hebrew language, and it's only worded this way a couple of other times in the Old Testament. It's very important that you understand what this verse says. It's not that the Spirit merely came upon him. The exact language that's used there is that the Spirit came and clothed himself with Gideon. Here's what that means. It means, here's Gideon. And if you pretend that I'm the Holy Spirit, I'm not your Holy Spirit. But if you pretend I'm the Holy Spirit, what that passage says is that the Spirit came and clothed himself, clothed himself with Gideon. Now what does that look like? It looks hot. <laughs> what, that, what does that mean? That means that Gideon is on the outside and where's God? On the inside. You know what that's a picture of? That's a picture of every Christian sitting here this morning. The whole army gathers. The whole army is assembled of the Midianites and the Malachites. They're ready to do exactly the same thing that they've been doing every year for seven years. And there they are. This whole army is gathered, but God does one thing. He gets one man and can fill him with his spirit. That's all it takes. Maybe that man's sitting here. Maybe that woman is sitting here. Maybe that boy is sitting here, that girl sitting here, whom God would want to use to turn the tide. And dear ones, we need the tide turned. In our nation, in Wynn, Arkansas, in the delta of Arkansas, we need the tide turned. We are being oppressed. We are in trouble. We are seeing our wealth stolen by the enemy over and over. We are seeing our advances stopped. We are cowering in fear, threshing grain in the wine press. We are those things. victory that is coming is not going to be an exhibition of Gideon's wisdom or his strength or his leadership qualities or his popularity, but it's going to be all about what God can do through a single person that he can fill with his Holy Spirit. And the only way you can explain what happens in the rest of the story of Gideon, you can't explain it naturally. It can only be explained supernaturally. And it's when God is working through us, when God is working through his people supernaturally, that the world wakes up and God gets the glory because they begin to see God at work. One of my favorite passages, Zechariah 4, verse 6, says, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And everything that we try to do is typically the wrong thing when we're not getting our direction and our enablement from the Lord through his Holy Spirit. If Gideon lived today, if the book of Judges were superimposed on our culture, our church culture, and we and the people of God and the people in the book of Judges were were superimposed on one another, you know what would have happened every time the enemy came in and oppressed the people of God? We would have gone with Othniel. We would have said, well, this is how Othniel did it. I have studied Othniel. 
And often he'll defeated the enemy this way. Step one, he did it this way. Step two, he did it this way. Step three, he did it. Or maybe we would have gone to Deborah and Barak. We would have said, this is how they did it. This is how you can be successful. You go and you study and look at what Deborah did. You look at what Barak did. And here's step one, step two, step three. I got a program for $220. You can bring your whole staff. And you can come and, and get our program that has been proven and has worked in our, our instance. And it can work in yours. You know, one of the remarkable things about what happens in Judges is that every single judge of what God does to deliver the nation is different. It's unique. It's God doing it in such a way that so that when the, each time it happens, people say, that was God, that was God, that was God. That wasn't something downloaded off the Internet. This is how the church is supposed to live and operate. I got an email this week about a conference to help you be successful in ministry. If you're interested in it, I'll be glad to share it with you. All the mechanics were there about how to lead worship, how to design programs like student ministry, Dustin, uh, communication strategies, administration, everything you need to be successful in ministry. The only problem is there was nothing in there about how to worship God. Nothing there about how to walk in his spirit, how to strengthen your heart in the Lord when you're discouraged, how to fight a spiritual battle, how to abide in Christ. All the things that the scripture emphasizes are rarely emphasized in our culture, a kind of idolatry on leadership that we've created. First Peter chapter 4, verse 11, is describing the different gifts and empowerments that God gives to the body of Christ. In chapter 4, verse 11, 1 Peter, it says, Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. So in every one of these gifts, God is at, at work. He's, he's doing something. Why? In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Forever and ever, so that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. The biggest mistake that sincere Christians make, and your pastor is one of them, is that we try too hard. We try way too hard. I'm not advocating laziness, I'm just suggesting to you that God doesn't get glory when we work ourselves into the ground. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In the next verse, he says, rest for your soul. It's a soul rest. There's times where if you feel like you're, you're trying as a believer, and you're working hard, and you're serving God in his church, and, and you're tired, you may just need to step back and say, oh God, show me, show me, show me. And I'm just going to rest in you. And trust and do the next thing you say. God brings glory to himself through me and my church when first the only explanation is supernatural. Secondly, he brings glory to himself when he leads us to do his will his way. To do his will his way. Look at verse 2 again. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands. Let Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Then look at verse 7. 
Then the Lord said to Gideon, By the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and deliver the Midianites into your hand. Let all the other people go, every man to his own place. Here it is. He blew the trumpet, supernaturally empowered, and all these people are drawn to him. And it's a work of God, 32,000 people. And, and, I, and Gideon's wanting to get this right. We don't have time to talk about the fleece, but the whole business of the fleece is, if you're a Bible scholar, it's not about, about Gideon doubting God. It was Gideon doubting himself. He wanted to get it right. He wanted to do exactly what God wanted. And so here are these 32,000 people, and you know how big the forces are? If you go over to chapter 8, you'll see that the forces they're going up against are 135,000 soldiers. I don't know how good you are at math, but that means that they are outnumbered 4 to 1. 32,000 Israelites against 135,000 Midianites. And God comes to Gideon and says, Gideon, we've got a problem. The odds are too heavily stacked in your favor. Interestingly, Gideon is silent through this whole exercise. Something in his heart is enabling him just to be obedient. But he watches as 22,000 leave, and then a bunch of others leave, and he's left with 300. God's concern with Gideon's generation was not the Midianites. God's concern was, was that they were going to take the credit for the victory. So they needed, he needed to remove any possibility that they would take the credit for the victory. And this is God's concern with us. And often what he does, the process he takes us through, is very much like the one that we find in Matthew 5.16, where Jesus said, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works, and glorify your Father in heaven. Two separate activities. They see your good works, but then they turn around and glorify your Father who is in heaven. I, I contacted Lisa last night. I said, Lisa, could we get one of those spotlights up there and the nosebleeds down here? And then if you don't know in the balcony, there's another balcony behind you, and there's, um, there's spotlights up there. Well, we talked about it, decided that would be too difficult. Those, those dudes are heavy. And um, I want you to pretend this is a spotlight. You all have imaginations. And, and what Jesus says, let your light, and you are the light of the world, right? If you're a Christian, you're the light of the world. God's intent is that the invisible God would make himself visible through your life in everything you do. And so that activity is kind of like a light. And he says, let your light so shine before men. That means that there's a way to shine the light, he says, so that you, they can see what you're doing, but the end result of seeing what you're doing is that they glorify your Father. But he said, let your light so shine in such a way that that happens. It also means you could let your light shine so that that doesn't happen. You with me? I could do my works and do my Christian activity in such a way that the light is on me. And people can say, what a great guy. What a neat person. Boy, that's really cool. Boy, he can really preach. You know, that kind of stuff. And I can listen to that, believe the press, get the big head. And, and all the while, that light is on me, right? 
He says, let your light so shine that they see what you're doing, but they glorify your Father in heaven. I don't know about you, but I have thought about that passage a lot over the years and, and thought, how, how, how is it that I can do my work in such a way that the attention goes to God? How is it? It's when you and I do God's will, God's way. Not when I do it my way. It's when we do it his way. Now hang with me here. Um, the, um, the 300, that whole business of taking the army from 35,000 and 22,000 left, that left 10,000, and then another 9,700 left, and that left 300. He was bringing it to a place to where if those 300 people defeated the 135,000, they saw their good works, but there was absolutely no doubt who did it. Is there? You need to understand that for God to get to glory, if we're going to do God's will, God's way, that means that sometimes things can get pretty uncomfortable when we do it God's way. In other words, it can get uncomfortable because where I am, it will feel impossible that the outcome is ever going to happen. And I'm, all I can do is trust God. God's will, God's way. I think a great example of this is the wedding at Cana. In that day and time, if you had a wedding, you were supposed to supply all of the beverages and the refreshments and the food and everything for a multiple day kind of a celebration. If you ran out of wine, that was socially a taboo, that was, that was bad news, that was embarrassing, that was not the thing that was supposed to happen. And so they're getting ready to run out of wine. Jesus is there, his mother's there. She comes up to him, she says, hey, they're running out of wine. Uh, she tells the steward, go talk to my son. Whatever he does to tell you, you know, he'll take care of it. Now Jesus, what's interesting is he does not fix the problem on the spot. He waits till they're completely out. He waits till every possibility of a human solution has evaporated. There's no human capability here. There's no way that, that they're going to save face in this moment. And that's when he steps in. Do you think that was very comfortable for the people who were experiencing that, who knew what was going on? Do you think that was comfortable for that wine steward? Do you think it's comfortable when God brings you to a place when the only possible salvation is a work from God? Doing God's will, God's way. Number three, God brings glory to himself through me when the only explanation is supernatural, when he leads us to do his will, his way. And then finally, number three, when our awareness of his presence replaces disabling fear with daring faith. Look at verse 7. I mean, chapter 7, verse 9. It happened on the same night that the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have delivered it into your hand. Now listen to this. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant. You shall hear what they say, and afterward your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. 
Now listen to this description. This is nighttime. These two men are sneaking into the camp. Now the Midianites and the Malachites, all the people of the east, were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts, and their camels were without number as the sand by the seashore in multitude. And when Gideon had come, there was a man telling a dream to his companion. He said, I've had a dream. To my surprise, a loaf of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian. Came to a tent, struck it so that it fell, overturned, and the tent collapsed. Then his companion answered and said, This is nothing else but the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. Into his hand, God has delivered Midian and the whole camp. Verse 15. And so it was when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation that he worshiped, he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise! For the Lord has delivered the camp of Midian into your hand. It says that when he heard the dream, and he heard the interpretation of the dream, that he worshipped. I want you to know that in that moment, God said, if you're afraid, go down in the camp. He goes down in the camp. So was he afraid? Yes. Wouldn't you be? All you got's 300. And an army out there, you can't even see all of them. He sneaks into the camp. He hears the dream. And when he hears about the dream and the interpretation that even the people in this massive army believe that God is going to give them over into Gideon's hand, what does it say that he did? He worshipped. He was no longer afraid. Something had shifted in his heart. Now what had changed was not Gideon taking a series of counseling visits to overcome fear. It wasn't Gideon trying to examine, why am I afraid? It wasn't Gideon trying to figure out all the solutions to his fear. Gideon had a new view of God. And as he began to see God and see something of the glory of God, it says he worshiped. The word there is shakah. Normally, shakah means simply to bend at the waist. Normally, that's what it means. But this is an intensified form of that word. Now, I've shown this to you before, but in this intensified version of Shekah, Shekah means this is what he did. He heard the interpretation of the dream that even these enemies believed that God was going to defeat them, and it says he worshipped. What does that mean? It means right there in the dark, right there in the middle of the enemy camp, Gideon fell on his face before God, completely surrendered to him, completely abandoned to him. It didn't matter anymore what they thought what they were going to do to him, what was going to happen when they attacked. didn't matter. He had met God. He had seen God. And he was overwhelmed by that. And he couldn't stay on his feet. The greatest problem that you and I have is not the Midianites in our life. The greatest problem you and I have is we don't know our God. We don't know our God. And when our awareness of our presence, his presence becomes real, fear is blasted away. And there's daring faith. And that's why Gideon appears in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. In verse 32 of Hebrews 11, talking about the people of great faith in the Bible that we are to look to and emulate. He says, and what more shall I say for the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and he lists several other men. Then he says, who through faith subdued kingdoms. God gets glory through people that believe him.
God gets glory through people who believe him. Your entire life, whether you understand it or not, your entire life is about showing off an invisible God and making him visible to a watching world. You say, Pastor, my life is so messed up. I've got so many problems and so many troubles, I don't even know where to begin to think about glorifying God. I just want to tell you right now, God has a new life for you. God has a life for you that you've only imagined. Maybe even you've never imagined. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what your estimation is of your potential and your worth and your, your credibility and your value to the kingdom of God. God has a, has a purpose and a plan and a life for you that is totally new and totally different than what you've got right now. And the only thing standing between you and that life is your own self-will. Because when you come to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, he doesn't come into your life to help you. He doesn't come into your life to just make life peaches and roses and wonderful. He doesn't come into your life to just sort of be your co-pilot like the old bumper stickers used to say. He comes into your life to completely take over the controls and to change you from the inside out. And that's what you want if you want that life that he has in mind for you. He didn't make you just to live and die. He made you so that you might be like this man Gideon, just a simple guy who trusted God. And God brought him through a process, and it changed him, and his whole destiny was changed. Have you trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Are you ready for that new life? He'll remove everything that's a barrier in your life. He'll take away all your sin. You can't improve. You can't change. You can't make yourself better. You can't make those sins go away. Or Jesus would not have had to die on the cross. His death on the cross was so that you could live. And if you'll come and surrender your life to him and say, I'm trusting Jesus to save me. I'm trusting Jesus to give me a new life. You say, Pastor, I don't know if I can live like these Christians here. I don't know if I can be good like them. I don't know if I can be, and, and, and listen to me, you can't. They can't either. They just don't know it. That's why every one of us needs Jesus. We need his life in us. We need him on the inside even though we're on the outside. Would you come and trust Jesus Christ today?